broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Midtown Business Radio. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Midtown Business Radio, joined in studio as always... Right across from me today. <laughs> by ex- our extraordinary <laughs> producer, Krista yeah, Baruti. I just, the descriptions get better and better, guys. I just, I, that's why I come to this job. One of the reasons why I really enjoy working <laughs> with you, Krista, is you're always saying really nice things to me. I mean, just the other day she was saying, I have a face for radio and a voice for print. And it really made me feel so great, you know? Uh, I, you can't write this stuff, you guys. You can't write it. <laughs> We've got a full guest slate today, so we'll go ahead and uh, meet our guests. We've got a number of different resources for the businesses in the Atlanta area to get to know about. And so we'll go around the table and just get a quick hello, and then we'll kind of jump in and start uh, learning about everything that they are doing. Uh, We've got Bo Wilkins from Sound River Advisors. How are you? Everybody's busy here, so uh, thanks for taking time. And we've we've got our friend Rayford Taylor from Casey Gilson. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. We've got Jay Cornelius from Nine Labs and Polygon. Thanks for having me. And then we've got, last but not least, we've got uh, Michael Hollingsworth from Nelson Mullins, Riley, and Scarborough. Yeah, you can just say Nelson Mullins. All right, then. Great. That'll help me because I I will probably surely stumble at some point. But uh, our neighbor here in the the Atlantic Station area, we've got uh, Jay Cornelius from Nine Labs. Talk a little bit about, uh, you know, Nine Labs and then what you're doing here with your, your space at Polygon. Sure. Well, Nine Labs is a user experience consultancy. And what that means is we help companies figure out how to use digital technologies to achieve their business goals. Essentially, it's a matter of looking at how people use the services and products you provide, figuring out how to make those better, um, specifically from the user angle. We know that people will automatically talk about things they have good experiences with. And so we try to help um, companies make better experiences of the things that they're doing online. Can you give an example of some of the companies that really benefit from linking up with you? Um, We focus on consumer brands. There's really a lot of B2B companies that would benefit as well, but our focus is on consumer brands. So think about um, maybe someone you're buying shoes from or someone you get eyeglasses from or tires or anything like that. You have to go on their website and get information about their products, about their services, about their company. And if you have a bad experience there, the chances of you actually buying that product are going to be diminished. I'd say that's probably true because nowadays almost everybody Googles who they're getting ready to go look at. I know I'll, exactly right. I'll certainly shy away from a business that doesn't have at least a basic website. And right. is, that, is your focus really on the website of things as much as anything? Or are you also trying to engage with the customer to kind of you know, talk about how do you interface with this particular product or service? The web is a big piece of it. That's kind of the central platform. But there's a number of ways that people use technology in general just to learn about a company. It could be email. It could be Twitter. It could be Facebook. It could be their own website. It could be radio. Who knows? So what we try to do is unify the experience across all of those different channels so that if you see a tweet or a Facebook post about a company and you go to their website to learn more, that brand message is consistent across all of those different channels. So you don't get a communication <coughs> breakdown in between. Now, are you, as, as you interface with your client, are you doing some kind of an outsourced parts of that where you're actually generating content for them? Or are you more advising them on how to go about that, to, to do what you were talking about, where they tie their brand together across all of those social mediums? That really depends on the client's capabilities. A lot of times we focus on the brand message itself. And if they have in-house copywriters or people who can do that internally, then they'll use that resource. 
we can provide that, but typically what we'll do is help them craft a message that really resonates with their target customers. So instead of talking about tires, for example, in a way that people don't really care about, we try to figure out what is the pain point people are trying to solve when they're looking for tires. Mm -hmm. How do they want to be addressed when they're in that situation? And then make that consistent across all those channels. And that's pretty cool that you're able to provide that kind of input for, you know, such a wide variety of, of companies out there. I mean, obviously, there's, you know, quite a large spectrum of, of verticals that sounds like you can serve. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the way that the web has shifted the way we behave in general as mm-hmm. people, as consumers, has changed dramatically over the past probably five years. Social has had a big impact on that. The second screen experience, you probably watch TV and have your yep. tablet or Every your phone time. in your hand. Yeah. So all of those things are really um, changing how we make decisions when it comes to what we're going to buy, where we're going to go. So it's, it's really important that people think about that, especially with the advent of, of uh, mobile devices being as prominent as they are, because most people are going to look at your website first on a very small screen. So mm-hmm. if it doesn't work well on a small screen, chances of them seeing on a big screen are are probably minimal. Yeah, and here in the last few years, obviously, being aware of the mobile device, the tablet, the the, the smartphone is a key component of having your website designed, um, and being able to make sure that the, your your brand is your your message from your brand is being displayed well across those. Because I know yep. that uh, many people, you know, same thing, they they use that mobile device as much or more particularly when they're close to converting, they're out looking, you know, you know, converting to, you know, do a transaction of some kind. They're mm-hmm. out nearby or they want to see what's close by. And if they can't get the information on their mobile device, it doesn't really, you know, might shy them away from your business. Yep. If the text is too small or if they have to scroll or they can't see the photos, then all of those things diminish trust. They, uh, they erode your confidence in the brand. And so people go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, talk about some of the trends that we're seeing. I mean, obviously, inbound marketing, that's a kind of a rise. We kind of fit into that a little bit. Both, you know, we've got our live content here, so people are listening live to the show. But after the fact, we podcast and new mm-hmm. media, you know, TiVo thinking, you know, I listen to the content that I need when it's, a, you know, when it's convenient to me. Um, inbound marketing being a thing where you're putting out information or content that's going to pull people to you. I mean, how do those things play into what you do? Well, people are very on-demand oriented now. They want their content when they want it. They don't want to think about um, having to tune in at a certain time per se. They want to be able to download it and listen to it in the car or watch it Mm -hmm. late at night when they're doing something else. So having content be able to uh, be accessed in as many ways as possible is very important. Email is still a very big way of reaching people because people check their email on their own terms. It's not something that gets pushed to you in such an invasive way like a text message or uh, someone knocking on your door. It's something that's available for you whenever you're ready for it and you can consume that on demand. You can leave it in your inbox if you want. You can look at it right then. It's up to you. We've been talking with Jay Cornelius from Nine Labs and Polygon. Um, you know, I, until I got to be part of the show here, uh, Midtown Business, and started meeting some of these tech companies that are in the Atlanta area, I really didn't have that much of an idea of just how bustling a technology industry that we have here. And it's, it's really huge. growing quickly, uh, both in the healthcare side as well as just general technology, software as a service. You name the technology, it's it's on the rise here. And there's more you know, investors and incubators and all types of things through like uh, Georgia Tech, for example, and Mm -hmm. Georgia Research Alliance over at Emory, um, you know, helping these companies to launch, you know, kind of introduce us to Polygon and, and, you know, we can let folks know a little bit about what you're trying to do for the tech industry with Polygon. Sure. Polygon is an event space specifically for tech and creative groups. And it came from the need 
Uh, I've been running the Atlanta Web Design Group, which is the largest association for web designers in the Southeast for about six years. We kept running into a problem that we couldn't find good space for meetings. As our group grew, we'd have 100 to 150 people show up, and you just can't have that at a random uh, conference room or in a restaurant. So we needed a real space, and a space that had good audio-video, good projectors, good seating, and all of that, and it just didn't exist. Other groups have the same problem, and rather than complain about it and quit, we decided to do something. So we opened this space, and we're, it's available to anyone who has any type of event that's technical, creative. We do workshops, we do hackathons, we do social events, we do all kinds of stuff there. So are you also located, is the Nine Labs also located there, or are you located separately from the space? Nine Labs has a separate office gotcha. on the west side. We're still in Midtown, but it's west side, <laughs> um, which is close to Atlantic yeah, Station, yeah. so it makes it easy to get over here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. Anything coming up real soon that folks need to know about? Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff happening. Um, there's a whole calendar of events at polygonatl.com slash events. Probably the most interesting ones coming up would be uh, there's a kids hackathon day where they're teaching kids how to code and kids how to, how to write games instead of play games, how to actually create the games, which is cool. We've got um, GitHub, which is a really large uh, way for people who write software to communicate with each other and share that code and make sure that their code stays in sync. They're coming into town to talk about the benefits of uh, their platform. The Atlanta Web Design Group has an event early next month. We've got the large tech holiday party coming up, which is a collaboration between ATDC at Georgia Tech, the Atlanta Tech Village, Polygon, Atlanta Web Design Group. All of that's happening. All those events are on the website. What is it about the city that really, in your mind, is making us emerge like we are at the exponential pace with regards to technology growing here? I think it's a few factors. One is we've got a really strong education system here with Georgia Tech, with University of Georgia, Georgia State. Mm -hmm. uh, second, cost of living is very affordable. Um, the quality of life here is very good. Um, you can buy a house here uh, for $200,000, it would cost you a million in the valley. Mm -hmm. And you can have a much better quality of life. So I think the, the blend of um, the old um, corporate school of thought here, which they know that the, the old corporations have to change, right? They know that they have to adapt. We've got good people coming up through the education system. We've got a good quality of life and cost of living is affordable. It makes it really attractive for companies to start here because they can start for less money and they can retain their talent easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, before we have to jump over and start uh, getting to know some of our other guests, can you maybe share you know, an example of, of with Nine Lab when you were able to interface with somebody and really kind of uh, improved the, the way that people were interfacing with their brand through their website or social media? Yeah, there's a, a handful of examples. Um, probably the, the one that sticks out the most was a uh, financial firm that we helped. They were actually in California. They were struggling because they were using different vendors for all of their services. So if you went to their website, you would see one type of look and feel. If you went to their website on a mobile device, you'd see a different look and feel. The logo was the same, but it was like different colors and mm. different look and feel. If you logged in to do online banking, it was, again, different. Mobile online banking was different, again. If you went to a mobile check deposit, again, different stuff because it was all supplied by different vendors. So what we did is help them architect a system where they were in control of the look and feel, but faced the public, and they could interchange vendors as they wanted to. So it was okay. kind of a middleware layer that they could, uh, if they wanted to swap the online banking vendor, for example, they could do that with relative ease, and the, the look and feel for the public was all the same. So what happened is that increased their overall uh, brand loyalty, 
people who were members of that organization were more likely to stay, they were more likely to be satisfied with the services, and they were able to uh, increase not only their deposits, but the increase of uh, the amount of loans they were originating, and overall just increase their business. Well, that's great. Um, you, you maybe next time you'll have to come back and bring one of the cool tech companies you all are working with uh, through, through Polygon or maybe a, a client that you work with uh, through Nine Labs. Before you uh, jump off, uh, off the mic, can you share how folks can get tied up with you uh, both on the web and social media? Yeah, sure. You can find us at NineLabs.com. You can email me at jc at NineLabs.com. You can find me on Twitter at jc, just J, letter, letter mm-hmm. J, letter C. Um, you can find us at awdg.org and polygonatl.com. Thanks for stopping by, and I, uh, hopefully you can hang out for the rest of the show. These guys here to. are going to be able to share some really cool information with us. I'll jump over and talk to Rafer Taylor from Casey Gilson. Th- this is a, a law firm here locally that uh, that I found, I think it was recommended to me actually through LinkedIn. I get to meet some really cool companies through LinkedIn and social media nowadays. Um, but from what I understand, you've been around for quite a while, but I, if I'm not mistaken, over 20 years in the area. Um, and, and a, a firm that serves some kind of specific industries like the, the you know, before we went on on the, the show today, you talked about how you've helped some transportation companies, for example. But one of the things that I was really interested in um, was your work in the workers' comp space and how you side on the, um, you know, the side of the business in this particular case, helping them in cases where, you know, someone is bringing some sort of uh, – uh, legal action f- as it relates to a workman's comp type problem. Let's get into that. Tell us your story. How'd you get to uh, where, where you are right now? Well, the the firm itself does a lot of uh, corporate work representing businesses in commercial litigation. Uh, my particular area is defending companies and insurance companies in workers' comp matters. Um, most employers in Georgia need workers' compensation Uh, If you have more than two employees, you have to have workers' compensation. Um, There are ways to exempt certain people. A lot of employers, uh, in order to keep their premiums down, um, classify a lot of their employees as independent contractors, which is very dangerous. Um, The way I got involved in in workers' comp was um, the law firm uh, was doing a certain amount of comp and I was doing other things and I started to help out and I've often <laughs> referred to workers comp as the kudzu of the law practice because <laughs> once you start doing it it just seems to grow over the rest of your practice and push it all out of the way so at some point I wound up doing basically workers comp all the time um, although I do represent some companies uh, that get into insurance problems with the regulators here in Georgia or in Florida but um, Basically, workers' comp is a substitute for the tort system, and it's a no-fault system, and employers have to have it. The vast majority of employers in Georgia are small employers, Mm -hmm. and um, they, of course, are forced to deal with that problem when an employee gets injured. One of the easiest things I tell employers is, if you have a workplace accident, you need to report it. There's a form for that. Um, when you say you need to report it, who do you need to report it to? You report it to your insurance company okay. on a state-mandated form. Now, the vast majority of workplace injuries are, are what is called uh, um, uh, no-loss time cases. Employee gets injured, he or she misses a couple of days from work, gets some medical attention, um, maybe they miss a week, whatever, they come back. And that's the end of it. Um, there is a certain percentage, a uh, minority of all the cases, that 
are called lost time cases, where they are paid medical benefits through the physician, and they pr pr paid indemnity for, the, for their lost wages while they're out of work. Um, only a small percentage of those cases wind up getting really litigated. Mm -hmm. But um, employers have a tremendous amount of misinformation about the system itself. Um, one of the things they do not do very well is work with their carrier to stay apprised of what's going on with that injury, that employee's injury, if they're going to be out for a while. Mm -hmm. um, if you're a very small employer, you may not be able to have an employee. Uh, you may have to replace that employee, and that can be done. The problem is it extends the period of time that employee may be entitled to indemnity benefits or lost wages. Um, also, a lot of employers just turn it over to their carrier, and they don't keep up with the employee. They don't uh, generate uh, any knowledge of what's going on with the employee. And typically that's very bad because we all know there's a tremendous amount of advertising going on <laughs> and people are looking for uh, um, lawyers. And a lot of employees will sign up, be signed up by a lawyer very quickly, even when there's absolutely no issue there to deal with. And a lot of employers get very upset about that. So when you know when you talk about keeping up with your employee once they you know if they're in that situation uh, whatever the injury may be that would cause them to be out of work for a while particularly I can see where it's difficult in a small business where you only have a handful of people I'm sure everybody you know they more or less hire folks only when they have to so obviously that person you know is fulfilling some sort of role what is that per what is the company need to do on their side of things you know you know this person's workers comps taking care of that but from the business itself how do you feel like they should you know what kind of homework they should do to, to stay in touch with or stay on top of the situation well if it's an employee that's a very valued employee to your company you need to keep up with them ask them how they're doing follow up not necessarily interfere with their medical treatment I'm not suggesting that but keep up with them ask them how they're doing is there anything you can do um, push to get them back to work, even if it's in a modified type of job position where they may not do their full job, but you have work they can do that's light duty, modified duty, uh, whatever. Um, because if you let an employee stay out too long and you don't get them back to work, the, the statistics show there's a high probability they will never come back to work for you or anyone else. So most employees want to come back to work. Mm -hmm. um, most employees, this is their first injury. And if it's fairly significant, I'm not talking about life-altering, but severe, broken leg, broken arm, those kinds of things, they're going to be out a while. Uh, they're not going to be as good as they used to be. Um, uh, and But if you can get them back to work for you, and they're not going to be out so long that you have to replace them, then the studies all show that that's a, a a good result for both the employer and the employee. When we were um, first starting out, you were talking about independent contractors. Um, can you talk about when is it advisable to have an independent contractor for you know a, re a business relationship versus an employee? Well, a lot of times, employers are encouraged to take this group of employees and make them independent contractors, pay them on a 1099, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem with that is if they get injured and they don't have any coverage themselves, the only place they can do is look to the employer. And the test for whether you are a true independent contractor is very tough. 
So if, if you go down that road, uh, I mean, let's put it this way, those 10 guys up on the roof of your roofing company, and one of them falls off, um, there's a high probability they are not independent contractors, which means you as the employer are going to be responsible for their medical bills, their indemnity, and so forth. Now, if you have coverage, but you've only insured the three secretaries in your company, the insurance company's going to have to pick that claim up, which is going to create a real problem when you go to renew your coverage. <laughs> so you need, to, uh, you need to be very sure that if you're going to make them independent contractors or utilize them in that way, they meet the test, which I say is a very stringent test, because the theory is we want every employee covered for comp that can possibly be covered. And how do they handle the the cost of their workman's comp insurance? If they're if 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 one of our folks out there listening is one of those companies, whether they've got skilled labor people of whatever type or whatever the case may be, where they're using independent contracting as as their structure, how how does it flow in terms of paying their workman's comp insurance? Is it taken as a like a tax? It seemed like it was taken in my pre-tax kind of you know things whenever I was paying it in Oklahoma before I moved here. Is that kind of how it goes? If I'm they're, they're, they're withdrawing monies, or at least they're paying it along, along with the wages they're paying the employee? Well, in theory, no employer should be charging the employee the cost of workers' comp. Mm-hmm. That's against the law. But the employer pays it based on – there is something called the manual rates, which is an old term. But what it means is we think your particular job, whatever it is, should pay a certain amount of money for every $100 of payroll that employer is paying on you. So the manual rate, as it's called, for uh, a secretary is dramatically different than the manual rate for a roofer because of the exposure. And the employer pays that uh, either on a monthly or quarterly basis to cover the cost, basically the premium, for that policy. Well, I, I think it's important for folks out there to know that, you know, if you're in that kind of place where you're trying to either I don't know, save costs or whatever, you know, headaches of managing the payment of people, perhaps, I'm not sure exactly what all the reasons are that somebody would choose to go that way. But, um, you know, understanding that there are some inherent risk, particularly as it relates to workman's comp, especially if you're dealing in sort of, you know, labor type spaces where there's potential for accidents. Um, that it's good to know that. But, you know, when does it come time for me to seek out Rayford Taylor at Casey Gilson to handle my workman's comp you know, problem? Well, in, outside of an outright claim, there are several things uh, I could do for that particular employer. I can sit down with their business model and see if, uh, if they want to go the independent contractor route. Do they have a, a sufficiently drafted employment agreement to really treat that person as an independent contractor. The other thing they can do is they can look at uh, some other steps they can take. For example, they can require pre-employment physicals to make sure they're not hiring an employee with prior injuries mm-hmm. or a long history of medical problems. But that can be done under the, under the ADA by offering them the position contingent upon a physical. You can't do a physical in advance, but you can offer the position contingent upon them passing a physical. I see. And if you're running a warehouse operation, whether people running around on uh, forklifts and pulling out heavy boxes and things like that, you need to try to minimize the potential of hiring someone who's susceptible to an injury. I've already had a couple of back injuries in the past, that kind of thing. Right. I'm probably at pretty high risk for doing that again well an employer might not want you in there on their warehouse floor no yeah. uh, but uh, doing this kind of work for example certainly isn't incompatible so 
there are a lot of things you can do to try to reduce your exposure to an accident, although they happen. The other thing you can work on is how you deal with your claims when they come in and how you treat your employees. Before we have to jump over and, and, and meet some of our other guests, can you talk about some of the places where you really see the, you know, the most missteps or the places where uh, businesses can really kind of shore up their, you know, their risk exposure, if you will, as it relates to workman's comp? Where do people go awry? Well, they go awry on the independent contractor. Um, Georgia has something called a contracting statute, which means if you have a job and you give it out to a subcontractor, all of those employees wind up being covered under your policy mm-hmm. if they have an accident, for example. Um, the other way they get into trouble is they don't um, pay attention to who the physicians are that are treating their employees. They're supposed to, by law, have a panel of physicians the insurance company is supposed to supply that that employee has to select from if they have an accident. Most employers don't do that, or if they do it, they don't tell their employees about it, which means they can go to any doctor they want, and you're on the hook for the bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, pre-employment, uh, making sure they do more of a background check on their employees to the extent they can by law, of course. Um, and um, some things they can do is look at, sometimes they get misclassified by the insurance company. Again, my example, you've got, all of a sudden you've got 12 secretaries that are classified as roofers. Well, that's going to make a huge difference in your premium, and that's easy enough to deal with to say, no, these people aren't really cla- aren't doing that kind of work, for example, and argue to get them reclassified, which would bring their premium down. I see. Well, share with folks how they can link up with you. I know you're on LinkedIn, of course, yes. but uh, website, social media that you, you can be found? Uh, the firm can be found at www.caseygilson.com, of course. Uh, I can be found at rtaylor at caseygilson.com, and I am on LinkedIn under Rayford H. Taylor. Obviously, um, if you're out there in the in the workplace and you have employees that are particularly exposing themselves to you know, some risk of physical injury, you know, because they're doing some more labor type work or, or not, even just a regular workplace. You've got to be thinking about these things. So link up with the folks over at Casey Gilson to uh, make sure that you're, you know, well protected and, and you're able to, you know, save some costs as it relates to your workman's comp exposure. So thanks for taking some time to share a little bit of information with us. Now, our next two guests actually know each other, have That's some right. background here. We've got uh, Michael Hollingsworth from Nelson Mullins and Bo Wilkins from Sound River Advisors. Talk about how you all know each other. What's your background? I think I originally met Bo through the family business forum at uh, Kennesaw State University, which is part of the Cox Family Enterprise Center. I was uh, a lawyer at another Atlanta firm at the time, and we were a sponsor, and then Bo was with, with another, uh, his predecessor firm. That's right. And he, and he was also a representative to that entity and we met regularly so we got to, we were two of the youngest people there so we, uh, <laughs> right. I, I, that was a long time ago by the way um, we uh, we got to know each other uh, when we had these off-site meetings at Sea Island and such so well that was Michael there talking go ahead and you know introduce us a little bit to your practice from what I understand you do a lot of focus on the mergers and acquisitions side of things and and some other you know a variety of things but it sounds like mergers and acquisitions was kind of a heavy role in what you do but uh, talk about who you serve that's correct i would say that uh you know in general we we represent businesses in the middle market and that includes emerging companies such as the ones that uh we were talking about earlier on the tech side uh atdc type companies my partner Doug Spear actually runs that practice. I run the more mature middle markets practice where we help um, we help um, larger companies that are in a, 
basically the basic definition there is are they capable of getting third-party bank debt if they are you know they're large enough for us to represent my group as opposed to Doug's emerging company slash technology group so we help them with all sorts of things mergers and acquisitions being the thing that I happen to focus on but we also serve as outside general counsel to a lot of these businesses who aren't big enough yet to have an in internal lawyer um, so it's kind of like having a what's the Italian term consigliere uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, to call up and say hey um, I have a an employment or labor matter uh, who should I call and so I, I coordinate a lot of legal services for the it's typically a privately held company that uh, that would not be big enough to have a it could be a private equity backed company or a family owned company but uh, do, isn't yet big enough or doesn't feel the need to have an internal counsel maybe they have uh, you know sporadic legal needs so they decided not to have someone there every day so you know a good example of this is that we I, we represent a lot of the uh, US subsidiaries of large Japanese parent companies uh, and a lot of these companies are out in Peachtree City none of them have a lawyer in-house so they call us for everything it's uh, whether it's a commercial litigation matter, whether it's a tax matter, whether uh, a lot of ERISA um, uh, matters, um, uh, employment benefits type type things, but uh, on my specific practice, um, you know, I help companies grow by um, or refine their business model, and and that would be a divestiture program. But typically, we're helping companies grow by doing acquisitions for them. What are the pitfalls that you run into typically in those types of situations where a company's trying to, you know, pick up another company to bring it in? Are there areas in there that tend to, you know, be the most problematic or at least exposure to risk of some different kinds? Well, we, we help them on the due diligence of the target company. You know, first of all, as a preliminary matter, you have to make sure on your side of the table you have adequate capital to go buy the company. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be signing a, a letter of intent without having the funds to close the deal. So we help them on the front side, whether it's an equity raise or a debt raise, to make sure they have adequate capital to actually fund the acquisition, or sometimes it's an acquisition program where they're gonna do multiple ac acquisitions and they don't wanna have to raise money every single time, so they will go and, and do a big credit facility with a uh, financial institution to be able to fund that. They may fund some of, of it out of uh, operations um, during the recession. A lot of a lot of companies sat around and let cash build up on their balance sheet because they were the market was so uncertain they didn't want to go spend that money quite yet. But now that capital is coming off the sidelines, we're seeing them deploy that uh, to grow their businesses. And sometimes it's a it's a refinement process where we have a public technology company here in town where. They had two major lines of business, and they decided that one of them they wasn't core to them anymore. So we sold it for them for cash, and we used the cash proceeds to pay down some bank debt and also do a couple of add-on acquisitions in their core business line. So there are all sorts of things uh, in, in the uh, organic life of a company, uh, whether it's refining and divesting some assets and or going to buy more in the ones that they're you know, they consider growth areas of their business. Now, when a when a company links up with a, a group such as Nelson Mullins, what's that relationship like? Is it, you know, a, 
uh, retainer. I, I'm, I'm, you know, kind of almost, for lack of a better way of putting it, a, a subscription, so to speak. I'm, I'm paying a fee on a regular basis that keeps me access to services, or is it kind of a per engagement, or does it depend? It depends. It depends on the relationship with the client. Um, what we are, in our business, what we're seeking is a trusted advisor role. So we're looking for long-term relationships for the most part. Call me when you need me. Right. Um, that's not to say that I won't participate in a uh, what we call a beauty contest to sell a company, which is a one-off transaction. But our preferred role is to be a trusted advisor to a company and establish a long-term relationship. And in that in that case, uh, for an established client, it can either be a you know monthly billing system or a retainer system. It, it's really up to them how they want to structure. We're very flexible, so. It's up, really up to the CFO of the company as to how they want to structure the arrangement. Is that who you find you typically are interfacing with as CFO or COO most of the time? And the type of company I've been primarily describing, the middle market, privately held company, uh, it's either the CFO or the CEO. Um, that That's what makes those companies a little more nimble than uh, some of the larger public companies that have uh, layers upon layers of stakeholders when they're trying to make a decision. Uh, the nice thing about representing middle market companies, entrepreneurial middle market companies, is that you're dealing with the decision maker. So when in, when we're talking about middle market, are you are you saying it's a company in the tens of millions and maybe privately owned still, not on the not traded on the exchanges? Is that that's right? Middle market's kind of a, a middle market in Atlanta means something different than middle market in New York, uh, but I would say that. Um, we, we define middle market at Nelson Mullins as 25 million and up in sales, and it probably goes up to, you know, 500 million in sales. So mm -hmm. it, there's lower middle market, middle middle market, and upper middle market. So it, it's a layered uh, sort of sort of market in our view. When when one engages with a, a group that's you know a large one like Nelson Mullins is, do you basically kind of parse out your your particular legal need with expertise if I need uh, somebody that does this or I mean oh, would yes. you be the guy for me or you'd be saying well you need to talk to uh, my colleague yeah if I'm the relationship manager I find the right talent within our platform to gotcha. serve the need and, and a lot of times we can you know depending on the complexity of the matter uh, we have younger lawyers who can deliver certain services more cost effectively than someone like myself so m part of my job is to make sure that it's an efficient representation and and many times that means pushing down things uh, to, to either associates or junior partners to make sure it's done right but also cost effectively mm -hmm. you've been doing it for a while do you find some areas that tend to be common themes that you know like we were talking about earlier is it related to workers comp but do you find some areas where clients that come to you over time that kind of have some areas that you would say, you know, if you're out there listening, these are some areas you really kind of need to be thinking about. If you haven't engaged with an attorney to talk about for your company, you probably should think about it. Well, I think, you know, a, a privately held companies, Bo works with a lot of these same type companies, and he can probably speak to this as well. But, you know, lots of times, um, you know, if they're, if they're about to sell themselves, for example, uh, cleaning up the accounting is always an issue because uh, especially family-owned businesses tend to uh, have some things on the books that aren't exactly um, what, what a private equity or, or a public company would you know they would normalize the numbers is what I'm saying so There's built in do you have accounting 
experts that are going to be kind of going alongside you, or do you link them up with somebody here locally that we is usually, in that space? They usually have an existing outside accounting firm. I got you. And we know every accounting firm in town, <laughs> so we work with them to, to shore that up. Uh, lots of times, uh, you know, I, I, the independent contractor issue that we discussed earlier, we look, we do an audit on that and make sure that there's no uh, exposure there. Um, you know, we look at the tax situation, make sure that they've been treating, you know, if, if they're selling to end users, sales tax can be an issue. Um, I would say that uh, a lot of companies these days, and I'm not an expert on this, so don't ask me any really detailed questions, but uh, um, a lot of companies today are not as sensitive as they should be to privacy and data security. Mm -hmm. um, this is a huge issue, and it virtually affects every type of company. If you have any kind of confidential information, um, you know, everyone's sensitive to HIPAA, you know, the healthcare yes. privacy law. but if you're if you're taking credit card information in any form or fashion and there's a breach of that you know just like the, the recent home yeah. depot um i think target had a an issue and yeah. and these are not pr data breach clients of ours so right. any, uh, confidentiality here right. um, that type of situation can affect businesses of all sorts and i have a privacy and data security expert right upstairs in this building uh named david katz and and his is one of the easiest services to sell right now. Every person I talk to, um, they may not be ready for an M&A deal or a debt financing, but I start talking about privacy and data security and the risks. Mm -hmm. And the next thing you know, David's sitting in their office talking to him. Right. Yeah, one of the companies that actually that we're going to have on here in a few weeks is called AirWatch. They're local. Um, and that's one of the things that they focus on is, you know, an enterprise that has laptops and smartphones and Blackberries and PCs and everything that are communicating with each other. It's funny. I mean, for me, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm getting my MBA through, through the show. Um, and so, you know, didn't realize or really think about the fact that, you know, they communicate with each other and some of the information that they're transmitting through the air is pretty sensitive. Um, and it can be leaky. Well, uh, yeah, that's a big issue because, uh, back in the beginning of everyone having email, uh, and I, I can actually, when I was in law school, I got my first email account. That's hard, hard <laughs> to believe it. And, I thought, what are people going to do with this? Right. No, no one knows my address because that was back when the addresses weren't intuitive. Right. And so, um, fast forward to today, you know, obviously, uh, email uh, someday might become an antiquated version of business communication, but right now it's still uh, the primary source of communication for a lot of businesses. The complicating factor is the the, the employer used to have all of that data that was passing on its server coming through its server now you have people with their own smartphones and ipads and and um, on personal devices and you have confidential information of the employer running around in various uh, states of encryption um, all over the place so that th these are these are issues that are going to be issues going forward for a while mm -hmm. i can only imagine and and i can just like you talked about some of the exposure that the large companies you mentioned uh i, I can only imagine there's some legal teams out there that are quite busy over all that process that uh <laughs> shoring it up and so forth and dealing with outcomes that uh, came from that yeah there's no question about it 
Um, talk a little bit about you know how folks can get linked up with you um, through through the internet and social media aspects of of you all. I know you've got a presence about everywhere out there on the social media. Uh, so yeah, we are we are an East Coast firm, so our Atlanta office is right here in this building, two hundred one Seventeenth Street. Um, we're on the web at www.nelsonmullins.com. I guess I said that twice. It's just www. Um, <laughs> uh, and my bio is easily findable. Michael Hellingsworth on on that website. Um, uh, we are on LinkedIn as Nelson Mullins, and I'm there as Michael Hollingsworth. Um, you don't want to follow me on Twitter because <laughs> my Twitter account is my Twitter account is used solely for Tennessee Volunteers football. So there's hey, no, you know, there's no business tips on there. So uh, beat Missouri this week. We'll Go try. dogs! We'll try. <laughs> it's turning into a different show, you guys. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> We're gonna put some of the sports talk radio shows out of business. <laughs> Well, I, I want to say thanks for taking some time also out of out of your day. Do you have anything before we jump over and, and uh, meet Bo and talk about Sound River? Or, you know, any cool stories of uh, companies that you really kind of saw a cool impact on through interacting with you? Well, I think, you know, uh, even though a lot of my business is buy-side oriented, um, some of the most fulfilling things that I've done as a corporate lawyer, you know, we're, we're not out saving the world like a lot of these public interest lawyers because we're doing business, but... To see a family that has really worked really hard over a period of decades sell that business and and become financially independent for life is a great you know feeling to have. But it's even a better feeling when you see them go do something with that the proceeds that impacts the community. And I can't I can't describe all of it, but I have a uh, client that uh, basically funded two museums that are open to the public with the proceeds of, of a big sale of their business and you know they're doing good with the money and and that's that's fulfilling and and were you able to then kind of kind of guide them through some of those steps as being able to help them position those funds to be able to support those museums were you part of that process as well other people at my i gotcha firm were yeah, that's that's really cool. Well, Bo, it was uh, fun chatting with you. Uh, you know, kind of getting to know you a little bit before we, you know, had you here on the show. So, you know, yeah. take me through Sound River. I think it's a cool name. Um, you know, what's this? What's your story? Okay, so thanks, CW, for having me. Uh, Sound River Advisors is an independent wealth management and life insurance advisory firm, and we work primarily with small to medium sized privately held and family owned companies. And, and really, we do three things. We help uh, our business owners invest, protect, and perpetuate their wealth. And uh, our, the way we do that is our, our company is two years old, and we all came together from I'm in my 23rd year of the life insurance business and, and recognized a need for an independent boutique that could handle the needs of a privately held business owner uh, and and what we've done is uh, have created this firm where uh, my other three partners uh, run our other practice domains is what I call them where I run the life insurance practice Scott Crenshaw runs our investment practice uh, Brett Virgin runs our corporate executive benefit practice and Philip Klingscales runs our tax planning practice so we're able to bring a business owner uh, in and create the relationship where we're able to to bring all those services to bear at the same time working with their outside advisors as well their their accountant their trust and estate attorney could be michael as the corporate attorney 
so we're we're bringing the whole working with the outside team as well uh, to help uh, like I said grow their wealth in a smart way protect it and then how do we transfer it a lot of what Michael was talking about is you know the business owners are thinking down the road you know how do I transfer this wealth to the next generation generations and then what do I want to do for the community? You know, what do I want to do from a charitable perspective? We do a lot of work in that respect, too. Yeah. And one of the things that uh, that you had mentioned when we were kind of getting to know a little bit about Sound River was that uh, a key benefit from linking up with advisors at your, at your uh, firm is that a company can have an effective strategy for compensating and uh, planning for you know you know a variety of benefits you know across the spectrum both retirement type things as well as insurance pro- products that can help keep key players in on, on your executive staff so and talk about that because that's a big that's a big value it's it, it's a it's a great point and what we've seen now with the with the economy getting better businesses business profits are up mm-hmm. businesses are doing a lot better and what we've seen in the last year and a half has been a real uh, need to retain and reward key people yeah. we've had our business owners coming to us saying you know we've we're doing great the problem is other people in our same space that are competitors are also doing great and they're yeah, poaching yeah that's right they're poaching key executives and we don't want to lose our key people and and we know they're getting uh, there's headhunters calling them executive search firms calling them what can we do and in you know so what we do is we help them design plans to retain reward golden handcuff them some of those could be <laughs> yeah that, it's a funny term um and and some in some of those things are either for example uh we might set up a deferred compensation program where the the five key people in the organization that are non-owners uh are allowed to put away their bonus on a pre-tax basis and that's over and above their 401k so that's a huge benefit to somebody that can afford to do that to say, look, I, you know, I'm going to max out my 401k and then I'm going to take my $100,000 bonus and I'm going to put that away on top of that and pay no income tax. So now I have a second retirement plan that's, that's a huge income tax benefit. And that pretty well ties somebody to a company. Mm-hmm. You know, as long as you're going to, Mr. Business Owner, you're going to allow me to do that, I will likely stay. Um, Another one is, you know, we see business owners, especially family held, that want to hold on to the equity. They want to keep the, the ownership of the, the business in the family, mm-hmm. yet they've got, you know, non-family in there that really is, could be often running the company uh, or very key to the company. Right. And in, in that case, we might do a phantom stock plan. So I was, and I was going to ask, is it it's possible to actually give somebody a measure of ownership, if you will, or equity? in the company without giving away the reins to the business. Exactly right. Sort of shadow equity, phantom Uh equity, where basically we're saying, CW, I'm going to uh, allow you to participate in the equity growth of this company, and I'm going to create a side bucket for you that's going to accumulate money based on the growth of the equity of this this company, which ties you completely to, uh, you know, to the company and how well it's doing and its efficiency and in taking real ownership. I would imagine that that's probably a pretty effective strategy. Do you find that uh, in, in those privately held businesses, family-owned businesses, do you find that they're reticent to do that kind of thing? Or do you find that that's a you know strategy that's fairly 
you know, I guess popular, if you will, when they have key players like you're describing? You know, it's it has not been popular for, you know, 08, 09. When we hit the downturn, executive benefits sort of fell off the face of the earth, you know, because people were just, you know, people weren't profitable. People weren't worried about how can I enhance my key executives' compensation. Uh, but now uh, you, we are seeing more of it. I'm definitely seeing more phantom stock plans, um, especially with, with people that are, you know, family-owned that want to hold on to that equity. Mm-hmm. I would say uh, non-family, especially like in the tech space, you know, stock options and giving out at real equity, you do see more of that in that area. We've been talking with Bo Wilkins of Sound River Advisors, and you, you mentioned the fact that your focus is heavily in the life insurance side of things. How does that come into play with with the way you know the tax environment is today? That's a great point. Um, we we talk to our clients about tax buckets. You know, essentially, you've got your your qualified pre tax bucket where you can save money, um, and then you've got your uh, after tax money that you paid your taxes on, and you put it with your into that uh, bucket. And then there's the tax deferred bucket, which is like Roth IRAs, life insurance and annuities. So life insurance is playing a big role in this environment of increased income tax rates and investment income tax on top of that, the 3.8% that hits hits you in addition to your income tax over and above a certain amount of income. (laughs) And so people that make a lot of money are basically saying, what can I do? And, you know, one of the things we do is we have an investment, an RIA, a registered investment advisory firm that we own. So we do investments, but my domain being the life insurance side, I come in next to my investment partner and say that we're going to create a tax deferred bucket of money where we can put money away in a life insurance contract and it'll grow without having to pay tax. Then at retirement, we're going to be able to access the money out of that product on a tax-free basis as well, because that's there's certain uh, advantages the product uh, enjoys that allows us to do that. So we're trying to create buckets of money for the client that are tax efficient now and down the road. Life insurance happens to be one that's a that is a you know that's that's a efficient in a in this income tax rate environment. And then in addition to that, we use life insurance for estate tax planning. So on on that kind of situation you talked about, uh, it kind of acts as a retirement vehicle. They get to a certain age marker then at that point that they can start withdrawing if you will right exactly and on a tax-free basis which is a which is a huge thing because <laughs> if you look at if you look at the historical you know tax rates everybody's bet is tax rates are going to go up well can you talk about how you advise your your clients as it relates to you know managing you know wealth transfers through like uh, the Roth IRA the different you know investment types of options that are out there for their for their key executives, how do you kind of get involved with that and, and take them through what they should do? Well, you know, for the for their key executives, you know, what we're, you know, we will, you know, with them individually, we would sit down with them and talk to them about their individual situation relative to, you know, making sure from an income tax perspective that they're, mat, you know, is it right for them to max out on their pre-tax savings? Um, and versus how much should they be putting into a tax deferred vehicle in addition to the 401k. Um, but on the wealth transfer, you, you mentioned wealth transfer. We deal, you know, with the business owners. We spend a lot of time on, on you know, how are we going to transfer your largest asset, which is your business? Um, and when should you start thinking about that? What is your exit strategy? 
you, do you want to exit the business? Do you want to sell the business? Do you want to engage somebody like Michael to, to sell it? Or do you want to not sell it and grow it? Do you want to uh, perpetuate it, you know, to the next, to, to the next generation? Mm-hmm. Um, and you're able to actually help do those types of things as it relates to those. Well, those that, masks. that planning, that conversation leads the way before anything happens and who we bring into to the table when we're talking about that is somebody like Michael, somebody like on Michael's team that would be in the trust and estate world, uh, the accountant likely, if they've leaned on their accountant for that kind of planning as well, we're going to, we're going to, that conversation is huge and it's critical because that'll drive everything relative to what does the business owner really want to do with that business? And then we start planning for that because if we know that he's like, he or she is saying, I want to, this is going to be a liquidity event for me in five years. So we know that we need to start getting the business ready for a sale mm-hmm. or I never want to sell it and I'm going to pull money out of it and create a retirement bucket outside while I'm growing the business and then I'm going to transfer the business to the next generation. So there's a lot of different planning that goes around. Then then we, then we the planning kind of takes effect underneath that. When it comes to the clients that you serve, are they typically here regionally or do you serve clients you know, across the board? You know, they're typically southeast. We've got some clients in Arkansas, we've got some clients in Texas, um, but predominantly Southeast and even I would say, you know, in Georgia, 70%. And as far as the relationship goes, if I link up with uh, Sound River Advisors to kind of manage some of these processes for me, is it sort of like what Michael had described earlier as a um, kind of an on-demand kind of relationship or is there kind of a continued, uh, you're kind of part of their team now to some extent? We much prefer being part of a team. You know, that is, that's, our, our company is set up that way. We, the four of us own our company uh, and we are building something for the future. And that's the kind of client we want is somebody that wants to grow with us. We want to grow with them. We are not a, um, you know, we, we like, like Michael said that we, you know, may have something that's a, a one-time event with somebody, but typically mm-hmm. it's not, not, not that way. You know, we, we are um, a fee-based you know, we'll either we'll have a, a ongoing fee that the the client like is paying us, type fee. Yeah, yeah, to do the work, uh, and very rare that it's a uh, a one off event. But the value that uh, that comes with that kind of investment is like we described earlier. Where either a we're keeping our key key you know executives and and uh, shareholders in our business and not letting them go to the competition. Obviously, there's value in that. They're extremely expensive to replace. Um, and then also just being able to do better when those financial transactions happen with a transfer of uh, either wealth or the ownership of company. If, if you're working with an advisor such as what you have here, then it's going to go more smoothly and probably going to come through with a better financial situation on the other side, I sound. Absolutely. Do you have maybe an example you know, of, of one of those times where you thought, man, this is what I'm doing is, is the thing. I, I really love what I'm doing. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I thought about that question, and I was—I've already kind of given the answer, which was from a technical planning perspective, which was the sort of the aha moment for the business owner when he was just really struggling with, you know, what do I do with this? There were three key people, and and they had been with him for 15 years, and and he's like, I just—I'm not going to give them equity. Uh, this business is staying in the family, but but they're like family to me. And, mm-hmm. and I 
can't afford to lose them and I want to take care of them because they've taken care of me and all this stuff. And we, we talked about the phantom stock plan and he was, you know, was like, you know, never heard of it. And, and it was great and satisfied so many, you know, satisfied them, satisfied the, the business owner. Um, so that, you know, that, uh, that was, you know, from a planning perspective was very rewarding because it's, um, you know, we brought some to the table that, that solved a huge issue for him because these, you know, to a business owner, the business is everything. It's almost as important as their children. Right. Yeah, <laughs> truly. And so, um, and I would say, you know, the, the stuff that's rewarding to me is Friday night and I'm at my daughter's, you know, soccer game and my cell phone rings and I get a call from one of my clients saying I got a problem. And it could be a personal problem and or it could be a financial problem or something that he's been or she's been thinking about. And that's um, my favorite part of the business is the relationship part of it. Yeah. And and so that's didn't quite answer your question. No, no, you did (laughs) share with the listeners where they can link up with you. Okay, uh, the web address is www.soundriver.com. And my email is uh, bwilkins at soundriver.com. And we're, we've got a LinkedIn corporate page, which mm-hmm. I, I should be able to tell you how to get there. But I guess if you just go to... Yeah, if, if you look up uh, Bo Wilkins, you'll, or you'll Sound be able River. to find Sound, yeah. Sound River under the companies as well. Yeah. And uh, so that's it. And then, uh, you know, if the listeners out there have have or have not done so already, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Midtown BRX. And even though I said there was no cost for being here, I lied. The, the, the cost is you have to link up with me on Facebook and Twitter and social media. All right. Um, but uh, and we make sure we tie in with everybody here. So that way, uh, if you did happen to miss an address or what have you, then you'll be able to find uh, information from all of our great guests. Thank you, everybody that's here, um, the professionals that take time out of their busy days to come and share some information about what they do and how they can uh, help the companies that get involved with them. Uh, It means a lot that you uh, give your time like you have to uh, come talk about what you do. So thank you to everyone that's here. Thanks to everybody out there for making us a part of your afternoon again today. Make sure you tune in and uh, see us next time. Same time, same place next week.